We are now at the Followers series, which is basically a cool way uh, to name the Sermon on the Mount. And so, yeah, today I'm excited. I'm really excited that we're going to take the rest of the summer for this series and really just kind of dissect all of the good things that Jesus taught about on that hill outside of Galilee. And it should be really exciting. So today's Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 1. We always put slides up if you don't bring your Bibles or you just have an electronic Bible called an iPhone app, you can use that too. Um, But basically where our story starts today uh, is Jesus is kind of tromping around Galilee and doing what he often does when he ministers to people or often did is he's healing the sick and he's really doing a lot of gospel proclamation, God's coming kingdom through demonstration by just being with so many of the poor and disenfranchised of all of Galilee. He's healing sick people. He's he's healing blind people. um, He's healing lame people. And so it's causing quite a stir around Galilee. So not only is he now healing all these people around Galilee and ministering to them quite significantly, but now people from all these other towns and villages are catching word what's going on in Galilee. And so they start coming dragging all of their sick people and leading all their blind people because Jesus is there. He's on the move. He's doing stuff, and we need to catch him. And so now the crowds are just flocking around Jesus from all of these people from the outside towns and villages all surrounding Galilee. And so what does Jesus do? He goes up and climbs up to this hill. Not to get away from them, but he climbs up to the hill so that he could see all of the people and teach them. And I can just picture all of these literally thousands of people sitting at the foot of that hill just waiting for Jesus to talk. The blind people with their heads down just listening to catch every single word that comes out of Jesus' mouth. And the lame people, the sick people, they're somehow making their way to that hill because maybe they were dragged or carried by some of their friends or family, but just hanging on to maybe the last bit of shred of hope that something might happen good for them because the Messiah is in town. This guy, Jesus, this miracle maker is there, accessible for them. And then so Jesus looks at the sea of faces full of probably mostly broken people. Maybe there's some dignitaries in the back a little bit far off because they don't want to associate with that crowd, but their curiosity is too overwhelming to keep them away from all of that's happening and this commotion that's in town. And then Jesus begins to teach. Now you got to remember, when Jesus taught, the way that he taught is so much different than how we teach now. The way that we teach now is basically like, for the most part, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but it's a transfer of information. I think that's kind of our typical way of teaching. If I, can, if I can transfer all the information I have into the student and they can regurgitate it back to me, ah, then I'm a successful teacher. And Jesus was doing much more when he was teaching than just transferring information. I think the, oftentimes the way that I hear a common form of teaching, the way that we do in, in our culture today is called, um, and I don't know why I remember this, but somebody once called it jug-to-mug teaching. We take all the information from our jug and pass it down to their mug. And if they can basically contain the information and regurgitate it back to us, we've done a good job. But what Jesus is doing is he's not just imparting information to his hearers. 
Jesus, when he teaches, is imparting a way of life. Jesus taught not just so that they could regurgitate the same information back and then he can feel good about himself for doing it. But Jesus taught because he taught in a way that would change the way they live their lives. And so as he's teaching now, he says the most amazing things at the beginning of this Sermon on the Hill. This is what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says this. He said to those thousands of people that were just probably sitting there waiting quite quite enough to hear a pin drop. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I could imagine, as Jesus was saying all of these things, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I'll bet you there was a pause. Just so they could take it all in. I can imagine the heads being scratched. I can imagine the gasps in the crowd when Jesus would say these astonishing statements because what he was saying was so unordinary, so unorthodox, so outside of the realm of any human possibility, he must have been staggering the audiences. And I think to really understand the significance of this, first of all, we need to unpack or at least remind ourselves a little bit of what blessing actually is. Because Jesus is saying some really kind of crazy stuff here. Blessing is more than just being happy. I think oftentimes we can define blessing a lot simpler than the real kind of biblical meaning behind blessing. I think oftentimes we use blessing to say, hey, I'm really happy. I was so blessed today because I got pulled over and the cop gave me a warning instead of a ticket. Oh my gosh, what a blessing. You know what I mean? Oh, I was so blessed because I didn't have to pay taxes this year. I finally got some money back. Oh, I'm so blessed. And oftentimes we use blessing as just a way of saying that we're happy. But I think blessing biblically is so much deeper than just something happening that makes us happy. Blessing has everything to do with God. Blessing actually isn't possible without God. God created blessing, and God is still very much involved in real, genuine blessing. Remember in the beginning, God created the birds and the fish, and those two creatures were the first things that he blessed and called them good. And it says that he blessed them. Then he made Adam and Eve, and he blessed Adam and Eve. God bless you, Griffin. (laughs) And then... And then after the whole world kind of went haywire because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and they fell away from all humanity, fell away from God, what did God do? On his mission to reconcile the world back to himself, he chose Abraham, and then he told Abraham, now you need to go and be a blessing to the nations in my name. Blessing has everything to do with us being involved with God. And we can't have blessing without God. I think a better way to describe blessing 
other than just saying, I'm very happy, or I'm super stoked, or I've had a lot of favor, which I think favor is probably the better of those three. But I think a good way to describe blessing is this. We are blessed when God is with us and for us. That's a beautiful way to talk about blessing. God being with us and for us. When God is with me and for me, then I'm blessed. And I could be in a myriad of circumstances. My world could be crashing all around me, but I know that I'm blessed because God is still with me and God is still for me. And so even if my world's falling apart, God, because he is blessing me, he will still use all of this for his good and even for my good because that's the kind of God he is. That's blessing. Blessing is much bigger than just something happening that's cool in our limited understanding of it. Blessing is rich. Blessing is involvement with the living God. And so... Now I can see why the crowds are gasping because in Greek culture and even in this ancient Near Eastern culture in Jesus' day, blessing was only possible for the rich. Blessing was only, in, in Greek culture, the only people that would be able to attain blessing were the gods, lowercase g, or the very wealthy of society. They were the only ones that were able to be blessed. And even in most of the Jewish culture in this day, it was assumed that you were blessed by God if you were wealthy. You were blessed by God if you had health. You were blessed by God if you were part of the upper crust of society. But it was also assumed that you weren't blessed by God if you were poor. God's blessing is not on you. You weren't blessed by God if you were sick. Something's wrong. You lost God's blessing because you're sick. You weren't blessed by God when you were forced to the lower echelon of society. And so that's why the crowd is just like, what did he just say? Blessed are the poor? Blessed are the meek? What? He is turning it upside down. What he is doing is he's redefining who the blessed really are. It's not, just, it's not just the rich. It's not just the upper class. It's not just the wealthy. No, blessed are you who are poor and meek and hungry and thirsty and lowly and persecuted. All of you are the blessed ones. And keep in mind, so Jesus is not just imparting information. This is really important for us to grasp in this text. Jesus isn't, isn't just imparting information so that we can have a bunch of requirements to follow so we can be blessed. I think that's a common interpretation to this, but it's wrong. Jesus isn't saying, oh, if you're poor in spirit, then I'll open up the kingdom to you. He's not saying, oh, if you're pure in heart, then I'll let you see God. That is not where he's going. He's not saying, if you muster up enough humility, And if you muster up enough purity in your heart, then I can open the kingdom. No, that would be such a works-oriented approach to God, and that would totally defy His grace. That can't be where He's going in this. So we can rule that out. And He's not, we also have to understand that He's not discounting rich people from being blessed. There are plenty of rich people in that day, and there are plenty of rich people today that have God's blessing. 
just like there were plenty of poor people in that day like there is today that don't have God's blessing. All he's doing is he's upsetting the prevailing thought of who they thought the blessed really are. And he is basically just widening the gates and showing them that everybody is, is I guess, open or available. God's blessing is available to everybody. That's what I was trying to say. I love how Dallas Willard, so Dallas Willard is an author that really is amazing. He's a He's dead now. He died last year, I think. But um, he's a philosopher, Christian philosopher, amazing author. Wrote a couple things on this. I just want to give you a couple quotes. This is what he says about this section of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He says, the Beatitudes in particular are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually told they are better off for being poor, for mourning, for being persecuted, and so on. Or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. They single out the Beatitudes. They single out cases that provide proof that in Him, the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. That is so beautiful. The Beatitudes simply cannot be good news if they are understood as a set of how-tos. Then, for achieving blessedness, they would then only amount to a new legalism. They would not serve to throw open the kingdom, anything but. They would impose a new brand of Phariseeism, a new way of closing the door as a, also, as well as a way of some very gratifying new possibilities for the human engineering of righteousness. I love what he says there. He says, they, um, what does he say? Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, they would not serve to throw open the kingdom of God. I love that. That's what he is doing here. As he's reading these, or not reading, Jesus wasn't reading. This is coming from his heart and soul. As he's saying the Beatitudes, he is throwing open wide the kingdom of God because everybody through him has accessibility. And it's such a beautiful picture. I wish I could see how shocked the crowd really was. I wish I could see how hopeful those poor and lowly people really were when those words fell from his mouth. What Jesus is doing is he is basically just meeting one of the greatest human needs that we all have. And that's simply to know and to be known, to belong, to be loved, wanted, and accepted. And he's saying that to that crowd right there. You're blessed. The kingdom of God is for you. So good. I'll never forget when I first began to kind of experience this concept that the kingdom of God is available to us not because of anything that we can do and not because of how we define ourselves or how society defines us, but how Jesus defines us and accepts us. The first time I really grasped this was when I first started Jesus when I was in my early 20s. I got radically saved, um, and I wanted nothing else to do but to give my life and serve my life to God. And I knew that I wanted to be a pastor. I just knew it. But I was too embarrassed to tell anybody. I was ashamed of it. Not because being a pastor is a shameful vocation. 
I was ashamed of it because I had no right to be a pastor. My background was so bad. My gra- background was I was uneducated. I was a, I was a dropout. I was a, in juvie growing up, a jailbird when I was an adult. I mean, what, what right do I have to just come to Jesus and say that I'm going to be a pastor? So I didn't tell anybody, but I knew that I needed to know the Bible. And so I joined this little school of ministry that the mega church that I was going to in Southern Oregon had kind of started. And so I signed up for this year-long Bible school. They accepted me, and I, I faked it. <laughs> I just kind of absorbed everything I could um, during this year of Bible school. But I, I definitely was one of the kind of the different students because the rest of the, the, the guys in the school, they, they all had grown up in the church, and they knew a heck of a lot more than I did. Um, but then... When graduation came, the lead pastor of this church decided that he was going to choose, out of these 25 students, he was going to choose four students to come on staff at that church and take over the youth ministry. And so he chose the typical few. He chose three guys that were all young men that were just solid, grew up in the church. All three of their dads were elders at the church, and they got to take over the youth ministry. And then I got a message from the lead pastor, and it said, Bucky, I want you to come on staff and be one of our youth pastors. And I was, oh, I, had, I couldn't even believe it. I was shocked. I was so overwhelmed by that invitation that I was borrowing, I didn't have a car at the time, so I was borrowing my little brother's car, and I literally jumped on the hood of his car and dented it because I was so, I just screamed at the top of my lungs. I was so excited. And then we were at a campground at, at the beach during when I got that message. And I re- remember as I was just kind of absorbing, they want me. Holy cow. They, they want me. And I don't deserve it. And I feel like I've got no right for this. But, but they want me anyways. And I walked to the beach and I took a walk and I just started weeping. I just started weeping because I felt that accepted. And I think the I think the message that I was godding, that I was godding, <laughs> that I was getting, the message that I got and was getting, and the message that I think that these people are getting too, is that, that the kingdom of God is available to us, and if we come to Jesus, because he opens wide the kingdom, and if we come to him on his terms, not on the terms of how we define ourselves, we're not on the basis of how society defines us because we know how to society defined all of them that Jesus was talking to in this crowd. But if we simply just come in the terms of how he defines us, everything changes. It's so beautiful. It's such, such a key concept for us to grasp. And it's just simply grace. It's so good. It's so good. And I think Jesus is using these examples, poor in spirit, mourning, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those that are being persecuted, all of that, because that's the crowd that he's talking to. The kingdom is open to all through him, but the crowd that he's talking to are all of those people. They're the ones that were meek. They were the ones that were the peacemakers. They were the ones that were being persecuted for righteousness, being persecuted and ridiculed for following this crazy teacher out of Nazareth. Nazareth. But what I love about this is that everything that Jesus did was show and tell. And I just kind of grasped, when I was reading this the other day, just preparing for today's message, something struck me. 
holy cow, Jesus always does show and tell. He's not just telling us about accessibility to the kingdom. He's not just telling us about us being blessed because he just got done showing them. He just got, show, he just got done showing them how blessed they were by healing their sick and their lame and giving sight to their blind. And after he shows them the blessing of the kingdom of God that's available to him, he climbs up on a hill and tells them. Everything that Jesus always does is show and tell. And I think showing and telling, demonstrating the gospel, good news, and telling people about it is critical to effective kingdom ministry. I really do. Because if we just show people God's kingdom through our acts of generosity and good works and kindness, it's awesome. But without telling them where all that comes from, the good news of Jesus, then it's nothing more than social justice. It's a bunch of good works that don't lead people to Jesus necessarily. And so there's got to be a show and tell. If we were just people that talk about the gospel, but don't demonstrate it by the way that we live our lives, then, it, then we're only hypocrites. Everything that Jesus does is show and tell. And so it just is a good challenge for me, I guess. How am I showing and telling people the good news of Jesus? But kind of in today's story, really the question that I want to ask us is who are the people that come to our minds when we think of those that are the hopeless blessables? Who are the hopeless blessables to us? And how do we throw open the kingdom to them? That's what I'm wondering. That's what I've been pondering. Who are, the, who are those that are so outside of the realm of possibility that I would never consider them as those that God would want to bless? Who are those hopeless blessables? Because that's who Jesus was talking to. He was talking to society's hopeless blessables. And he was throwing open the kingdom of God to them. So how can I do that in my life? I think there's a lot of people in our communities, not just our like home communities, but I think there's a lot of people in our greater communities that see themselves as beyond the limits of human acceptability. Or at least beyond the limits of most human acceptability. And am I throwing open the kingdom to them? Seriously, what, what kind of people come to your mind? What about, I hope, I don't, I don't want to be taken the wrong way here, but what about the, the morbidly obese? What about the disfigured? What about those people with the horrible complexions? What about the people with, with social inadequacies? What about them? What about the murderers? What about the pedophiles? What about the gay and lesbians? What about all of, all of these people? Am I... Am I showing them the accessibility to God's kingdom by the way that I live my life? Am I opening God's kingdom to them? I don't, I'm just throwing out random, you know, ideas, um, examples. But I guess the question that I want to ask is, how can I live my life that way? How can I do what Jesus exemplified for us to do? And that is be those that show and tell the good news of the accessibility of God's kingdom and to bless those that I would usually consider hopeless. The hopeless blessables is a way that I like to phrase it now. Jesus had an amazing way of looking past all of people's problems even though they were the most scandalous and straight into the person. It's exactly what he was doing in John 4 with the woman at the well. The disciples were scandalized by that moment. And Jesus looked past all of her issues and all of her problems 
straight into that person behind all of that. Nobody else could see past her lifestyle and her reputation. But Jesus looked at and he saw somebody that was hungry and thirsty and she was trying to fill that thirst with something else. And then he gave her what was right, what she needed. So how can we do that? I think, I don't know. I think there's only one way. I think there's only one way, and that is by loving God. I guess if we're going to come out with a practical application here, it's simply this. The way that we bring good news and the kingdom of God and his blessing and throw open the gates to relationship with him to all of those that we're in contact with is we have to just do one thing, and that is love God so much to where his source of love overflows into the life of others. Because I think if we're really maintaining our intimacy with him and loving him, our love for others will be an outflow of that. It has to be. John says in 1 John, he says, if you say you love God and you don't love your neighbors, then the love of God is actually not in you. And so, do we love God? I think how we love our neighbors, how we are a neighbor to those around us, whoever they might be, is a good indication of how much we love God. And that is actually really convicting to me. I can say that I love God, but if I'm not loving my neighbors, well, maybe I don't have as much of the love of God in me as I thought I did. And so I guess... I would close with just inviting all of us to bask in the love of God that's available to us every single moment of every single day. Because that's where it happens. And then the natural effect of that is to say to those people that we wouldn't have ordinarily spent any time with three weeks prior, I want to have you over to my house. I want to spend time with you. Not because I have an agenda and not because you're a project. Because I really care about you. That's the kind of person that I want to be. And it only comes from my intimacy with him. Because he's the source of, he's the only source of that kind of love. So I'm going to close in prayer and let's and invite all of us to bask in that kind of love. Because we don't got it without him. <laughs> Amen.